Uh, I believe this is the third week I've put something like this on the board simply because I think it kind of helps us uh, to keep the big picture of what is going on in this particular part of, of Ecclesiastes and really what is going on in the entire book in a sense. But uh, let's just uh, take a minute and review this real quickly. Um, here is the uh, obvious, well maybe it isn't so obvious because of the way I swappily do things, but here is, uh, here is the key element, which is God and our understanding of him, all of the attributes, and especially uh, well, two or three weeks, maybe four weeks ago, but whatever, we put a list of these on the board. We spent uh, a good ten minutes or so just making a list of his attributes. But uh, I'm not going to do that again because that takes a lot of time and we've already done it. But anyway, here's God. Um, the box is not closed. There is something beyond the physical world. There is a God who exists. There's a God who cares. There's a God who's good. There's a God who's sovereign and so on. And this stick person is to represent human beings. And in a sense, you could put yourself in each one of you could put yourself there. We have two choices now. we're going to respond to God. We can respond either in sin, rebellion, and disobedience to him. Solomon characterizes that as the position of a fool. Or we can choose to respond in faith, trust, and obedience to him. Solomon characterizes that, characterizes that person as wise. And so what Solomon is doing in chapter 7 um, now we've, we've been in this section several weeks now, but what he's doing in chapter 7 is he's bringing up uh, illustration after illustration, point after point, uh, in a very practical dimension of, of, our, of our lives to show that this is true. However, and, and this is the caveat with all uh, of Ecclesiastes, a person who's wise, a person who responds to God in faith, trust, and obedience, it doesn't mean they're going to get all their questions answered. It doesn't mean they're going to understand everything that is happening and everything that God's doing and everything that God is, is trying to accomplish. And so he's keep bringing us back to that. And you're going to see that particularly in verse 13 and verse 14. But let's pick up with verse 11 and 12, which is kind of where we, um, I think we left off around verse 10 or so. But let's take 11 and 12, and if you're following in your notes, it's uh, page 12. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Now, he kind of states the same thing over and over again. What do you think he means? Wisdom along with an inheritance is good. I would guess there's only speculation that if you have wisdom you have an asset in the sense of you know how to live life with an inheritance you have the means to live a good life so you have kind of the best of both that's good prosperity uh, wealth if you will that comes by means of an inheritance um, can be very dangerous. 
it can be very uh, self-defeating and self-destructing if you do not know how to use it. So he says, wisdom with an inheritance, that's a good thing. What would be the necessary corollary that goes with that? Foolishness with an inheritance is not good. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the things that uh, we, we looked at this real uh, early in our study of uh, Ecclesiastes. I believe it's in chapter 2. Solomon says, I really worked hard. I've amassed quite a fortune. I'm about to pass this on to my kids, and they're a bunch of fools. <laughs> Remember? I mean, that, that, I'm paraphrasing his point. So, you know, Solomon was aware of that, but he's saying something that is really true. And that's um, today in, in American civilization, especially. We're kind of on the front end of the greatest intergenerational transfer of wealth in the history of the world. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of $40 trillion in the next 15, 20 years that's going to be transferred from one generation to another generation. And that intergenerational transfer of wealth has a lot of people really concerned. Why do you think they're concerned? Because they're not sure how the generation is going to be getting all this wealth going to use that wealth. Because, you know, that's, in, in a sense, that's what fuels the stock market and to some extent some of the stuff that happens in bonds and all that stuff. And go out 10 to 15, 20 years, you're still going to have these really shrewd, frugal, forward-thinking individuals, or are you going to have individuals who don't really know how to use wealth very well? Plus, that generation to, to which all this wealth will be transferred is a generation with an enormous amount of debt. So it's just got all kinds of interesting implications. It has nothing to do specifically with our topic, but it does indicate something that Solomon keeps saying. Wisdom is necessary for good living. If you want to know how to enjoy the life that God's given you, you need wisdom. Why do you think he uses the word protection in verse 12? Wisdom is protection just as money is protection. You could translate that shelter. It's actually, the Hebrew word is actually used uh, in nature as the shade that a tree provides in a, in a hot, sunny day. So that was not a rhetorical question, by the way. It's, what do you think? Why do you think he uses the word protection? What does he mean by that? Or substitute the word shelter or substitute the word shade if you want to think of it kind of figuratively or metaphorically. Wise choices help you to avoid trouble. I think so. It does. Wise choices uh, gives you insight, insight into the consequences of your choices, and that's kind of protection. Um, any other thoughts? Balance. <clears throat> I'm sorry? Balance. Oh, balance. Uh, yeah, in what sense? I, I mean, I, I think well, you, that you might can, I mean, I, I've seen people with money that they're not wise and it really didn't bring anything but just, I think, disappointment to them. And you can have money, and if you're a good steward of it because you realize it came from God, then you think through how you want to allocate uh, those resources that have been given to you. Okay. It can, uh, wisdom helps to enhance the balance that's needed yeah. for a good, uh, a good life. Okay, Andrew? Here. Yeah. Um, looking at the second half of, of yeah. verse 12, it kind of makes me think, 
you know, it says wisdom is a shelter, his money is a shelter. Money can prevent uh, some problems, but it says the advantage of knowledge is this wisdom preserves those who have it. You can't really extend your life objectively with money, but you could certainly uh, prolong your life with decisions that you make. Mm. Mm. So sure. it needs sure. to be in a shelter from sure. the storm, so to speak, because you're making wise decisions sure. that aren't going to <clears throat> kill you. <laughs> are, <laughs> we, are we encouraged in the Bible to uh, think and plan for the future and use the resources, however you would think of those? use the resources God gives us uh, for the future? I mean, the answer is so obviously yes. In, in Proverbs 24, Sol Solomon, who wrote that Sol uh, proverb, says, I want you to think about the ant. Consider the ant. Study the ant, which is really an interesting thing to encourage us to do. Why, why does he say that? Because the ant spends about three-fourths of its year getting ready for winter. <laughs> when it's not going to be able to gather food and, and not going to be able to feed its family, so to speak. And I think uh, it's that balance that we need, back to Fred's word, it's that balance we need. We are to be frugal, we are to plan, we are to be wise, we are to save for the future, but yet not let that become the sole motivator and driver of our life where wealth and amassing wealth, I mean, it's that balance. So, you know, and this, that's one of the, back to a, point I was making earlier, that is one of the real concerns people have of this upcoming generation. That is not often how they are looking at life. They're living for the moment, so to speak, generally speaking, and will that intergenerational transfer of wealth enhance their living for the moment, meaning they'll blow it all. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. Now, I don't want to belabor this. It's, it's like 11 and 12, is, it's like so obvious. But one of the things of a proverb, an Ecclesiastes, is just a series of proverbs knit together to, to give us a perspective about life. Is, is, a proverb is stating and restating and restating and restating the obvious. A proverb is common sense. Wisdom is common sense, living. And that's what Solomon's doing. But the next section, uh, by the next uh, uh, paragraph, really, verse 13, 14, what follows, is a challenge for us. But uh, any comments before we leave that? <clears throat> I just said one yeah. thing, and we may have went over this song. Um, I like in um, how he answered 12, it says, the wisdom preserves the life of its um, uh, possessor. But I think a preserve, I think, is what is what you fill something with or you include. Mm. And, I, and when I think of a preserve, right, it's it's something that's what you fill in, you know. The shelter's what, what's around us, but how most things rot is from the inside, and preserve is something from inside, and that wisdom is something that protects them beyond the shelter. It's from the inside out rather mm. than from. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting observation. I mean, it really is. <clears throat> and I mean, I would I would concur with that. I think you've uh, you've made a good insight. That that's really interesting. I haven't thought of it quite that way with that term. And that's indeed what, what, uh, what he's telling us to do and the counsel he's giving us. Let's look at 14, uh, 13 and 14. Um, Consider the work of God, Solomon says, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Interesting rhetorical question. 
Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. And then we'll, we'll see his concluding point in a minute, so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. We'll, we'll look at that in just a minute. But um, who is able to straighten what God has bent? That's a statement of adversity. That's a statement of God shaking things up. And rhetorically, can you straighten out what God has bent? So what is he asking us to consider here? <clears throat> that God is, I mean, the verb that we use here, the word that we choose here is always difficult. But ultimately, God is the author both of prosperity and adversity. Sometimes we say in terms of adversity, God permits it, God allows it, because God's not the author of evil. But you have prosperity, you have adversity. What's Solomon saying? If this is true, God and all his attributes, his sovereignty, his goodness, all of the things that we've talked about over the last three weeks or so, then ultimately we must conclude whether we use the word God allows it or permits it or whatever, God's in control. And so if adversity hits me, what's the conclusion? God's allowing it for some reason. <clears throat> So what does that mean? You would have a purpose in that adversity. Where I think for a lot of us, I, I think where I've learned the most has been through the adversity in life. So I think there's, you know, if I can, it's easy to look at it when you get away from it for a little while, but in the middle of it, it's a little tougher. But I think that, I think we learn. I think I learned from the adversity more so than even my prosperity. Are there any um, are there any passages of scripture that might come to your mind which encourage us to think about adversity in that way? I mean, you're giving an experience, and I agree with that. Uh, is there anything in scripture that keeps driving us back to the conclusion that Terry just summarized that that is how we're to look at adversity? Can you think of any? Romans 8. Yeah. Romans 8. And then, like, I'm, there are, I think, a couple examples of this. I can't remember the exact chapter and verse, but <clears throat> kind of the refining of gold and the dross ah. at the top. Okay. Okay. Dross. Yeah. Dross. <laughs> well, that metaphor that's in the Bible of the refining of gold, of, of precious metals, how do you do that? Through fire, through difficult. Now, all the junk comes to the top. One of my favorite verses, and it's a hard one. I don't like it. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Who wants a verse like, I don't like that verse. Do you like, I don't want to respond in joy. And I'm, I'm being a little bit humorous here, but, or as Terry or somebody mentioned, Romans 8. Uh, as a matter of fact, let's, let's go back to that, or well, let's actually go forward to that. If you have a New Testament with you, just go over to Romans 8, <clears throat> the very end. A couple of years ago, we studied uh, the book of Romans, and I mean, chapter 8 of Romans is a, I have said it's probably the most important chapter in the Bible, practically speaking. 
And I want to look at Romans 8. I want to look at, eight, at 28, 26, and 28, and 29, and 30. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He searches the hearts. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It's a remarkable <coughs> two verses. Verse 28, it's like, therefore, as a conclusion to this, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And now there's, there's a lot of theology in these next two verses but whom he foreknew, he predestined to become formed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. A lot of theology in those last two verses. But both 26 and 27 and 28 gives us the divine perspective on adversity. When we're in adversity... Often, we do not know how even to pray. And I, I don't know, you know, I know some of you have been in some very difficult, I mean, I just personally know a couple of you have been in some very difficult things in life. And uh, a couple I've been through, it's hard to even know how to articulate a prayer. I mean, you know, you, Lord, your will be done. Or sometimes I'm so angry, Lord, I'm so frustrated, I'm so ticked off at this. You can't really get a prayer articulated. This verse, verse 26 and 27, tells us that the Holy Spirit's praying for us. Praying for us according to the will of God, he says at the end of verse 27. That's, I don't know about you, that's absolutely astonishing thought to me. It's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary thought that's beyond my comprehension, that the Holy Spirit's praying for me. You know, I mean, that, that baffles us, my goodness. But if you factor that into what Solomon is saying, when you're in good times, be happy. When you're in bad times, consider God's the author of both. God's in control of both. And there's this confidence, and I'm not even sure that word fits when you're really hurting, but nonetheless I'll use it. There's that confidence when I can't even get a prayer out, the Holy Spirit's praying for me. And then the second aspect in verse 28 and following, there's a lot of theology there. And if you don't mind, I don't particularly want to get into the theology. It's just, if our God is a God who's all these things that we've listed, that means he can bring good out of something that is really, really, really hard in the harshness of life. In other words, if you take what Solomon says in that proverbial way of saying it like he does in Ecclesiastes 7 and you add to it the James 1 2's of scripture the Roman 8 26 through through 20 or through 30 parts of scripture you start to get some theological framework of how to process what Solomon is saying does God ever abandon us no And I want you to think with me about something else, if, I, if you don't mind. Um, one of the central teachings of Scripture 
is that Jesus Christ is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. Now, think about that for just a minute. Fully God, fully man. And, and what the scriptures teach us is that the second person of the Trinity added to his deity humanity and came to earth for a purpose. That purpose was to die as the judgment, as the punishment for sin, and defeat its enemy, which is death, which is what the resurrection does. <clears throat> All right, now, that's not only an abstract theological term. That is a profound, practical concept. Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4, the end of both those chapters says, Jesus is in all ways like us, yet without sin. Let me take that one further step, if I might. In, there's an old hymn of the church, uh, and it goes something like this. No one understands like Jesus. And that, that keeps being repeated throughout the hymn. So um, where I preached this Sunday, I was using that, so that's why it's really fresh in my mind. Does Jesus know what it's like to be tempted? Can he identify with you? When you pray to him, can he identify with you? Absolutely. He experienced the most egregious and extremely difficult temptation you could ever experience. He did. Does Jesus know what it's like to physically suffer? Yes. Does Jesus know what it's like to be lonely and be alone? Yeah, everybody abandoned him. Everybody left him. Does Jesus know what it's like to emotionally experience all the dimensions of human life? From anger to sorrow, and the answer is yes. The reason I'm saying all that, when Solomon says in adversity, consider that God is allowing this to happen. In addition to the reality that the Holy Spirit prays for us and we can't get a prayer out, that God is ultimately going to bring good out of these things. In addition, there's, I think there's a third uh, comforting thought with all of this. Jesus really knows what we're going through. I mean, Jesus has experienced it. So that when we pray to him and cry out to him and scream at him and all the things that we can do in that emotional spectrum of responding to circumstances, it is that, uh, that enormous confidence that our God really, really knows what we're going through. You probably know, that, well, I know you know the Hebrew better than me because I don't know a word of Hebrew. <laughs> Sure you do. You know Shalom. You know, you know <laughs> but verse 13, it seems to me, I mean, the way you've just stated it, he allows these things to happen. It sounds like it's a more passive role. But if I read 13 in the English, the way it's written here, in the, it says, consider the work of God, which would suggest to me that, that there's a much more active engagement in what we experience in life. Am I reading that wrong, or how would you... No. Um, I mean, that's a great way to put it. Active engagement uh, that goes with the attributes of God as sovereign God, as providence is real, and those kinds of things. So, yes, I mean, he's not a... Um, he's not a passive... Uh, 
perfect watchmaker kind of God who's distant and, you know. <laughs> I think the challenge for us, Jim, and I'm, I mean, I'm not sure where you're going with that, but I just want to add this real quickly if I might. The challenge, though, is then do, do, do we take the next step and say, well, then God causes this? You know what I mean? Especially if you're dealing evil with evil, that kind of thing. Because the Bible makes it clear that God is not the author of evil. I mean, that is throughout the scriptures. But yet, I mean, what I think you're getting at, at least, uh, if not, please uh, continue to ask me the question or, or whatever you're trying to articulate here. God is not passive. He's actively engaged in all of this. The word I like to use, Jim, is the word superintend. God is superintending all of the events and affairs of our life. Well, I mean, that's the way I would describe it. The way I, I often say this to people is that, again, I'm the, one of the oldest rats in the barn here, so if you don't all know what a pinball machine is, <laughs> remember that ball that comes in and bounces all over? And it's, it, We don't live a life like the ball in a pinball machine, I don't yeah. think, where we just yeah. randomly bounce here and there and we don't have any idea what's going to happen. There's order to what happens yeah. in our lives. Absolutely. Maybe superintending how that ball rolls through, mm -hmm. our ball rolls through life is a way to consider that. That's, I mean, that, uh, it, it's almost, you know, superintending the ball as it goes through it. But that's, in a sense, that's right. What seems random and out of control <coughs> sometimes, which is what my image of a pinball is yeah. always that random out of control. Um, it's not, it's not random, it's not out of control. Right. This is a, this is an audacious statement. It really is. But I believe it's theologically correct. There is no such thing as a coincidence in life. Should be very encouraging as well. I think. Yeah. It? I mean, you're in the hands of a good God. Exactly. Who does right? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, this is see the the, the 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 further we go down this trail, the more questions are raised, <laughs> because you've got Syria, you've got Gaza, you've got ISIS, and I mean, you've got all these horrific evil things that are happening in the Middle East uh, right now and all of that, plus just the common ordinary things that happen in life, a terrible, horrific automobile accident or a terrible storm, all those things. But what the Bible encourages us to do, and it's so difficult when we're right in the center, is God is going to bring his purpose out of that. And I mean, in Jim's word, you used the word chaos, didn't you? Chaos or disorder, random. Uh, the, the observation you sometimes make is chaos. Right now, I can, let me, if I might embellish this a little bit. This is really an interesting big picture, big geopolitical thing. The post-Cold War order of our world is coming apart. After the, after the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a, Kind of an order that came out of that, what seemed to be chaos in the late 80s, early 90s, an order and stability came out of that. That's coming apart now. We don't know what that's going to look like. Are you and talking because of stuff going on in Russia? Well, that's part of it. That's, that's part of it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's part of it. Uh, uh, but it's, I mean, a lot, a lot more things that are a part of the post-Cold War. I mean, it's what's happening in Asia. I mean, it's just, all I'm saying is, and that creates chaos, because you don't know where this is going to end up. The same thing in the Middle East. After World War I, and then it was, because that's when the boundaries of the Middle East were drawn, 
and to some extent after World War II, because not all, the Middle East wasn't directly affected by World War II directly, it was sort of indirectly, but that's coming apart. We don't know where that's going to end up. And that creates chaos, it creates tension, it creates uncertainty. What does the Bible say to us? God's got it all in control. It doesn't mean that they're marionette, he's, he's running marionettes up in heaven, you know, marionette is the strings. That's not the right way to look at it. And it's that curious mixture and tension of human responsibility and God's sovereignty, but it's not chaos. With God, there is no such thing as chaos. Out of that, God is going to bring order. And ultimately, that's what the scriptures are saying to us, ultimately it will bring the end of history, which, as you know, culminates with the return of his son. So when you're in the middle of something, the words we use, disorder, chaos, everything's coming unglued. Those three words you never use with God. Those, those words never, never characterize God. And yet that creates for us as humans, because we're finite and all those things that characterize us. The, the, the wise person responds with faith, trust, and obedience. God, you do have everything under control. What looks like chaos to me isn't. You're, you're reordering things for your purposes. You know, it, in the, the first half of the 20th century, God was reordering events in an enormous amount of perceived chaos to accomplish one thing, at least we know for certain, the establishment of a homeland for the Jewish people. Now, you may not think that's a big deal, but I mean, that's a very, very important, it was a very important event of the 20th century. It ended almost 2,000 years of chaos and disorder for one group of people. And I'm saying it because that, that's what God's doing. And he's doing that every single day. Because Satan is challenging him in all areas, but Satan's boundaries are always set by God. And it's this complex theology of putting us all together. So I'm getting a little bit down a bunny trail that you don't want me to go on anymore. I have a question. When he uses that word uh, bent, would those be illustrations that you've just given as well as personal application of things that come into our lives that are that create uh, tumultuous uh, situations. Is that bent? He's bent it, and he can use that. Is that is that the meaning of this for his purposes for us? He wouldn't do it, would he? Unless he's doing it for our purposes, who love him for. For his purposes, which ultimately have the intent of our good. And if, if we, another way to approach that rhetorical question, if we try to straighten out what God's doing, we're not going to do it. We're not going to be able to do it. Or to some extent, even necessarily figure out all that God is doing. God is infinite, he's eternal, and he's transcendent. All of those words do not characterize you or me, and so we don't have we don't have that big picture, big picture perspective of God that He does. So, how do you respond in sin, rebellion, disobedience, or in faith, trust, and obedience? If God is who He says He is, and in your life He's been faithful in demonstrating who He is, if you've trusted Him for the past, trust Him for the future. See, Solomon is, uh, 
Solomon is shaking us up here a little bit because, and that's the nature of a proverb. He makes a statement. Think, I got to think about that statement. And the more you think about it, the deeper you go, and you get all these questions. That's what a proverb does. It shakes you up. A proverb shakes up your categories. And when God is the subject, um, almost every single day you're going to have your categories kind of shaken up. And that's why it just drives us back to the premise. Is God in control? Is God good? And does God know what he's doing? Because sometimes, I mean, I don't know how you guys are. I'm watching the evening news, and I'm thinking, things are really out of control. I mean, it's, you know, the way the press presents things like, you know, a particular storm. It's absolutely the worst thing in recorded history, you know, this storm. And, I mean, it's bad, but, you know, you, you kind of get that. And then you see a, a plane almost crashes because a drone is in its path, you know. And then you see the Middle East, and then you see Putin in Ukraine. And, I mean, all those things. And by the end of 20 minutes, you're, I mean, you're, you're, your response is chaos, disorder, and things are out of control. And then you factor in your typical conservative Republican bent, and knowing the antipathy you feel for the current administration, you're even more convinced that things are out of control. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious there, but I mean, it's just all of those things. And Solomon is saying, in the days of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider God's made one as well as the other. Factor in James 1 2, consider all joy when you count a various trial. Factor in Romans chapter 8. I mean, just go on and on and on because that is what Scripture is telling us. God has a plan, and God is working that plan, and you are a part of his plan. And you say, I am in this little tiny corner of his world. Yeah, that's exactly what you are. All right. I think we're ready to move on, but I'm not sure if we are. It's just, um, it's the stuff, Proverbs, and I, and I don't mean the book of Proverbs, I mean a proverb, which is like Ecclesiastes filled with them. It's just, you read it, and you have to think about it. You have to meditate on it. You have to, yes, okay, that's that's good. Now, verse 15, in a sense, and it's like the challenge with chapter breaks. In, you know, the chapter breaks aren't in the original. So we added those a long time ago to make it easier. Sometimes yeah, that isn't easier. But let's consider, and if you look on page 13, I'm just trying to organize some of this. Solomon probes the relationship um, a third of the way down in an introduction Solomon, uh, in this important section, Solomon probes the relationship between God's sovereignty and human character. Is prosperity always an indicator of God's good pleasure? Is adversity always an indication of God's anger? By observing human life, one sees that wicked people prosper and righteous people suffer terribly. So righteousness will not guarantee temporal reward, nor will wickedness always guarantee temporal judgment. Do you understand what that sentence means? Temporal means in time. You may not see a wicked person face judgment day. You may not see that while they're alive. What does the Bible tell us? There's coming a day 
when they will stand before God and have to give an account of how they lived their life. So Solomon's probing this. Now, one of the things that he begins to surface in this section, starting in verse 15, going to the end of this chapter, chapter uh, 7, verse 29, is, now here, here, is a, here is a proposition to consider as we go through this. We've already to some extent talked about it, but let's put it in the form of a sentence. How we respond to circumstances shapes our character. That's one of the things he's going to teach us here. How we respond to the circumstances of life, the roller coaster nature of life, will shape our character. If you go back to James chapter 1, verse 2 and following, we studied that, I believe, did we say James last year? I think it was, or a year and a half ago. But anyway, James <clears throat> says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Next verse. Because that's how God builds your character. And you say, I don't want my character built that way. I didn't sign up for this course. I want to register for a new course to accomplish that objective. And God's response is what? There's no other course. This is it. You've registered for it. We're going forward. But the, but the, the diploma for this is fantastic. It's eternal life. So... Let me, let me use this point by citing another individual in the Bible. Job. The first two chapters of Job. You know, Job experiences, well, I think you all know the story, but Job experiences just horrific evil and, and un, un, unbelievable suffering. He loses everything. Every material evidence of God's blessing in his life is gone. And then he suffers personally in his body when he struck with that, whatever that exact disease was. And you know the interesting thing about that? Unless Job wrote the book, he never knew why this happened to him. When you study the book of Job, and that's a long book, the key, the key question that keeps up coming up through the book is, God is not interested in always answering our questions, why? Why is this happening to me? What God is interested in is what's your response to this. Sometimes God chooses to help us understand why he's allowed this to happen to our life, but many times he doesn't. What he's interested in is what's our response to this. Terry said it, I think, uh, earlier in the class this morning. Through difficult things in life, he's learned the most. Now, I don't know specifically all he meant by that, but he could probably share that with But for many of you, think through your life. That's probably true for you. You've learned some of the more important sort of life-changing, transformational lessons of life in adversity. This is what Solomon's beginning to probe in this section. If God's sovereign and his sovereign and his providence is real, then how do I factor into this the way he's using circumstances in my life? Some of those hurt. 
Some of those are, are terribly difficult. Some of those are painful for me personally, and they're painful for people I care about. So I'm setting all this up. But are you with me? I mean, this is, this is, I don't know how you guys think of this stuff, but this is where, this is rubber meets the road kind of Christian living. Because if you think you come to Christ, there's, there's some charlatans on television that are sending the message of a prosperity, good life gospel. Come to Jesus and everything's going to be fine. That's a lie. That is an absolute lie to tell people. That's not the message of the gospel. That's not what it is. The Bible says it again and again and again and again and again and all the major characters of Scripture, you see it again and again and again. Life for them is just like life for the unbeliever. It's a roller coaster. You have peaks and you have valleys. That's life. We live in a fallen world. <laughs> a fallen world where there's disease and there's accidents and there are horrible things happening. The difference isn't are you absolved or, or will you not have any of those? That's not the issue. You will. The issue is how are you going to respond to those? Because now you have a Savior who's died for you, who's put his spirit in you and gives you enablement and power to get, begin to develop his perspective on things. And that's a very different perspective. All right. That was a long introduction. But I, I wanted to make sure you come to terms with what he's starting to do. He, it's connected, but he's starting down another trail here. So he begins it in verse 15. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. Futility means emptiness. It doesn't make a lot of sense. What do you mean? Well, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Now that, that is stated throughout the Bible in many, many different ways. In one of the Psalms, the questions asked of God, God, why do the wicked prosper? And I, I don't know, that seems to be a good question. I mean, you know, I look at Hollywood, and I look at some of those I mean, just terrible role model people, and they seem to be prospering, doing great. And I thought, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If I were you, zap them with the thunderbolt, wipe them from the face of the earth, that's just, that's the better way to handle it. God doesn't do that. So why are those wicked, nefarious people prospering? Nefarious means evil. That's a great word. Have you ever asked that question? That's what I've observed in my world. This is what I see. So now he starts to reach some conclusions. And if and the way I organize in your notes and the, the way I think it's organized in the text is he wants to make three primary points about this. He investigates this. He thinks about this. He considers all of this. And he makes... Three key points. Point number one is verse 16 through 18. Now remember, these are stated in like Proverbs. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? The word ruin there, I'm not sure that's the best translation. It can mean disappoint or that which brings dismay. Do not be excessively wicked. Do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? 
It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. The one who fears God comes forth with both of them. All right, now, in verse 18, grasp one thing and not let go of the other. What's the one thing? Righteousness. What's the other thing? Wisdom. Balance and keeping both on the front burner of your life, righteousness and wisdom. So go back to verse 16. It's, 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 it's a rhetorical question, but it's, it's almost absurd. What's he saying? Do not be excessively righteous or overly wise. What does he mean by that? How can you be excessively righteous? <laughs> Self-righteous. Sorry? Self-righteous. Self-righteous, yeah. Self-righteous. Andrew? Kind of um, talking to the point you said a minute ago, if you really do believe kind of in the doctrine of total depravity, you're not any better than people who are mm. prospering. So mm. your question of why should they prosper, you're asking, you're asking the question, why should, can anybody prosper mm. <laughs> in a way? Um, so saying that I'm righteous, I should prosper, when you know that you're in, in reality you're sinful and your heart does not seek after God. Um, mm. I'd say overly righteous is saying, I deserve what that person's getting because they're mm. wicked and not good. Mm. I'm thinking of good. the price condemnation of the um, scribes and Pharisees mm. for their excessive righteousness and the, the way they drove from human, a human perspective to be righteous. Which ultimately, at least for them, and, and I think you're right on there, Jim, ultimately <clears throat> led to what kind of righteousness? Uh, legalistic, formalistic righteousness. Let's probe a little more that conclusion in verse 18. It is good that you grasp one thing, also not let go of the other. Again, I think in context it can only mean grasp one, which is righteousness, but not let go of the other, which is wisdom, keeping those in balance. Let's talk a little bit about that. What does that mean, keeping those in balance? How does wisdom help balance righteousness? Or maybe vice versa, even. Back to the point that you said earlier, it almost, uh, one without the other works against the ultimate somber goal. I mean, whether you're, the, you're um, uh, preaching that, hey, become a Christian and all good things will happen mm. to you, right? And almost to the point of we're better than everyone else, so God treats us that uh, way. Yeah. It works against our, our goal. Yeah. As a, a wise person, that what draws people, <coughs> humility mm. draws people. Uh, um, uh, Which is an aspect of wisdom. Is, is, it draws people. Mm. It's, the end goal, it, um, I don't know how to describe it. It, 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 by balancing them, it will, draw, it will draw others as well to God as well, I guess. You used the word humility, which is, I, I think, a good word in, in this context. Humility is a dimension, or a, maybe I should say, an outworking of wisdom. A wise person is usually somebody who's humble, who's not arrogant, boisterous, bombastic. There's, there's, there's a firmness and a, a certainty and a confidence, but there's a humility. That's wisdom. That's a result of wisdom. And it, it's like, okay, so my righteousness should not be, a, as I 
both who I am as a righteous individual in Christ plus the righteousness which God wants me to exhibit is not a cause for arrogance and pride. It's just the opposite. It should be a cause of humility and dependence because what do I have to do with being righteous? Nothing. Christ made me righteous. <laughs> by dying on the cross for me and being resurrected, and I appropriated his work by faith, and that's how I become righteous. So what did I have to do with that? I didn't have anything to do with it. So wisdom keeps that in balance. I am who I am in Christ, not because of anything I did, but because of what Jesus did. Therefore, my response is, a wise one of humility, independence on him, but also confidence and a certainty because he's in control. I mean, it's all of those things that just keep that balance of a wholesome, balanced life. And when you're around someone like that, you say, I know, I know. It's, it, to write it into a paragraph is hard, but when you're around somebody like that, yeah, I, I see that. So wisdom, wisdom and righteousness are held in balance. Righteousness is who I am in Christ. Wisdom is the right response to who I am in Christ. It's how I live my life. So it's a great, it's a great observation. My goodness, that Solomon is making. So I've investigated this. Why do the righteous seem to suffer and the, the wicked seem to prosper? Well, I've learned something about that in my own personal life. And he reaches that conclusion. The second one is uh, just because you're righteous doesn't guarantee you from harm and difficulty, but wisdom helps balance that. So and I, what I did in your notes is I just listed, I itemized a couple of things that he's saying here. Uh, we've got, uh, I think, enough time to get through this. Let me read 19 through 24 and just listen to how he does this. Again, these are proverbial statements. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city because there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also do not take seriously all words which are spoken lest you will hear your servant cursing you. You also have realized that you likewise have sometimes cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom and I said, I will be wise but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? Goodness. Lots of statements in there. First of all, verse 19. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers from the city. What does that mean? I mean, in your notes I wrote, wisdom does give more protection than military strength. What does that mean? Well, I mean, I've always, I've always thought about life that I, I would rather have wisdom than wealth or anything because it would enable me to live a life that is probably the most productive, most satisfying, most whatever so I mean I, I, in this context I, I would I think he's saying it's better to have wisdom than you know be surrounded by other people who will give you advice um, okay. better than having strength in the city better than having 
you know, wealthy friends, and, mm. you know, that. Or awesome military power, yeah. lots of nuclear weapons, and all those kinds of things. Uh, yeah. Um, by using you know, ten rulers from in a city, that's remember in the ancient world, the cities were all walled. They always had walls for protection and defense. So he's kind of making some kind of military statement here. And if that's correct, then he's saying that wisdom protects more than the most significant human defenses you can imagine. What does that mean again? Wisdom protects. How? And that's something he said earlier when, when we, we were in the previous material. So he's saying wisdom protects your, like, let's just use just an example, like even walls around a building? Is that what he's saying? Well, it's, it's a metaphor. It's figurative. So what does that mean? If you, it's like an analogy. As a big high wall that's well fortified protects people from invasion from the outside from their enemies, so wisdom protects me. How? Being influenced by foolish mm-hmm. concepts, okay. uh, thieves, and with people who would take advantage of you. I'm sorry? If you're a fool, yeah, I'm sorry. then even having great military strength may not protect you from the stupid things you get yourself into. Okay, okay. I mean, you can go down multiple trails if, if you, of application when you think wisdom protects me. Wisdom guards me. It, it, I mean, just, I mean, there's so many things. How about wisdom protects me from a, uh, an, a, a, a foolish use of the resources God's given me. Wisdom protects me from choosing foolish friends who are going to have a terrible influence on decisions I'm making. Wisdom protects me from the kind of impulsiveness that comes with life. I'm going to think through decisions. I want to think through the concept. That's what wisdom does. And so it's like wisdom is this constant wall around my life that keeps protecting me from foolishness and impulsiveness and stupidity and and foolishness, which is all around me. And almost anything you can think of and what the Bible keeps telling us, the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So if, you're, if you've come to faith in God and you're beginning to get, this is what I think Paul means in 1 Corinthians 2.16, where we have the mind of Christ, where we begin to get God's perspective on things, that's an important dimension of wisdom. God's perspective on things. What is God's perspective on things? The 66 books in this Bible help us to begin to get God's perspective on things. You and I are (coughs) temporal people. God's eternal. You You and I are finite people. God is infinite. You and I are slaves to space and time. God is transcendent. I mean, you can go on and on. So what does that mean? When he tells me something here, that now becomes a principle of wisdom in how I'm going to live my life. I mean, you can just, that's just a great thought. Wisdom strengthens me. It protects me. It guards me. Solomon said, I've, I've learned that. But he wrote this at the end of his life. And did he make a lot of wise decisions? 
He's the wisest man that ever lived, but he didn't know how to apply it. Or maybe that's too soft on Solomon. He was the wisest man who ever lived, but in his arrogance, he chose intentionally and willfully not to use it. So Solomon says, at the end of my life, I've learned this. And that's a, I think that's a great thought, that wisdom protects me, it strengthens me. Think about that. And in additionally, you know, um, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Righteousness doesn't guarantee no adversity. And part of the reason for that is even righteous people sin. And they live with the consequences of their sin. Now that doesn't mean every time an adverse thing happens that's because of sin. That's not what he's saying. Now we're getting near the end of, the, of, of this, uh, I can't believe the class, but <coughs> go down to verse 24 for a minute. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. What does he mean? What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. What does he mean by that? That's a proverb, that's a statement. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. What, what's he talking about there? Okay, obviously you didn't hear that, so I'll repeat it. When he says, what has been is remote, what does remote mean? Far away. Distant, far away. And exceedingly mysterious, what does that mean? Yeah, it's inscrutable. It's hard to figure out. It's hard to discern what's going on here. So when he says, what has been, what's he talking about? The things that have happened. The things that have happened in my past, the things that have happened in this life, the things that have happened in this world, the things that have happened historically. It's remote. And it's exceedingly mysterious. What does that mean? I can't figure it out. Now, can I give you an illustration? Um, history is, you know, it's four, four degrees in our own history and historical theology. This, this year, I've, I'm reading my third book on the causes of World War I. If, I don't know if you know that. We're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of World War I which if there ever was a war in human history should never have occurred. World War I should never have occurred. It was the most foolish, silly war that ever occurred. And I'm in the middle of a book right now called The Sleepwalkers. It's written by a British historian. And the argument of his book is all the leaders of Western Europe were sleepwalking. I mean, they were... You look at that and you study that, that's remote and exceedingly mysterious. It doesn't make any sense why these very smart, very intelligent, key rulers of Europe stumbled into war. That's part of what he's saying. I can't figure that out. That doesn't make sense to me. World War II is much more... You can really figure out why World War II occurred. But World War I, it is mysterious. It's very difficult to figure out why the leaders would allow themselves to get into a situation where you have this catastrophe, the worst war in human history up to that time. It's somewhere, they don't even know how many people were killed. It's somewhere between 20 and 30 million people were killed. Now, World War II will exceed that by far, but I mean, that's part of what he's saying. So, not a big mega thing, but down in your own life. You look back and you say, what has been is remote. That's 
That happened to me 20 years ago, and it still is true. I can't really figure out why that happened. Who knows the answer to that? God does. I can't discover it. I can't figure it out. But I love and serve and trust someone who loves. He's got it all figured out. Isn't that a, isn't that a great statement? Isn't that a great thought? <coughs> It's remote. I can't figure it out, but God can. And I serve him, I love him, I obey him, and I trust him because he does have it all figured out. He's got my life all figured out. I sure haven't figured it out yet, but he's got it all figured out. All right. I hope you guys love Ecclesiastes as much as I. I love this book because it just it, it keeps causing you to think and reflect on pretty profound stuff. It's very common sense, very practical. Jim, a lot of this, I think this comes down to us here in our relationship to God and mm. just the trust mm-hmm. aspect that we have. Absolutely. Seeing he's, he's made all of this for us in a way for our lifetime while we're here. And if we're, we're satisfied and content within ourselves and our relationship with him, we're truly content, regardless of where we're at, what we have. It just seems like, because I mean, we love him. Exactly, exactly. And uh, it, it's kind of keep that in the front burner of our life, that relationship with him. I'm going to pray. Father, we are grateful for uh, the book of Ecclesiastes and the wisdom therein. We thank you for... Um, the Holy Spirit inspiring Solomon to write this. We thank you for what it teaches us. In a very real sense, this is about wisdom and wise living, and how we respond to things. And I thank you, especially for this section we're in right now. It's one of my favorite sections in, in the wisdom literature of the Bible because it's so penetratingly practical. Thank you for these men. We ask your blessing on them and their lives and their work and the responsibilities and the relationships they have. Help them in all of those areas to be men of wisdom, men who are learning what it means to be wise and discerning with the insight and understanding that comes from you and your word. This is a process. We're all in this process. No one has reached any kind of level of excellence or mastery. You're the only one who does, so we trust you with all of these things. We think of Daryl. As Fred said, he's recovering from knee surgery and that knee replacement Surgery can often be very difficult uh, with all the therapy and there's a lot of pain and just adjusting to it. But at least almost everyone I've known, once it's all over and the other side of it, it really is a blessing. And we trust that will be the case for him as well. We think of Woody, too. I see he's not here today. So we just continue to trust that dear brother to you. He's been through so much in this last year or so continue to comfort and strengthen and grow him in his knowledge, his understanding, and his walk with Jesus Christ. For the rest of the men here in the group and those who are not here today, we ask you to give them special enablement and in all they say and all they do, might they represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. See you next week, Lord willing.